I'm Siri Lindley, two-time world champion, author, speaker, animal activist, survivor, and thriver. I have found a way to overcome every challenge and to take the impossible and make it possible. On my podcast, we're going to talk real life. We're going to get vulnerable. We're going to go first. You're not alone in your fears, your doubts, or your worries. The most successful people in the world have them. Stick with me on this journey. I will help you harness your power, claim your magic, and create the life that you dream of. Welcome, everyone, to the Bedhead Chronicles. We have one of the most extraordinary women I know. Alison Levine. Let me tell you a little bit about this amazing woman that you see on my screen. Alison Levine is the first American Women's Everest Expedition team captain. She is a, has broken records as an adventurer and polar explorer. She's a faculty member at the Thayer Leader Development Group at West Point, and she is a New York Times best-selling author of On the Edge. Alison Levine, thank you for being here. You're amazing. And I'm friend of Siri and back. So most, more important than all that other stuff. I'm so <laughs> pleased to be here with you. I'm such a fan and um, just love you to pieces. So it's really an honor for me to be here. I was going to start with that, that she's a friend of mine and one of the greatest inspirations. But thank you, Alison. Now, I'm wondering... You are just this badass adventurer, leadership coach, author. I mean, everything. Like, how did this start? Like, when did you get that, that little seed inside that said, I need to get out and explore the world? All right. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I was younger, I was always obsessed with the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. So I would read these books and I'd watch these documentary films. Um, I think I was attracted to these stories because they were in really cold places and reading books about cold places felt like an escape from the extremely oppressive summer heat in Phoenix. So I'd read the books and I'd watch the films, but I never actually thought I would go to those places because I had some health challenges. So I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. And um, I was finally, so I, I never thought, you know, I would end up doing anything like that, but I was finally properly diagnosed when I was 17 years old. I had my first surgery when I was 17. That one didn't go so well, but I had another one when I turned 30. And after that, about 18 months later, this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, hang on. If I want to know what it's like to be, you know, this explorer, Reinhold Messner and, you know, ski across Antarctica, then I should go ski across Antarctica instead of just reading about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of just watching films about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old and, um, and I really haven't stopped since. So I just fell in love with the mountains at 32 and for a number of reasons, first of all, because my, my heroes, you know, that I'd been reading about since I was a kid, you know, I felt like I was following in their footsteps a bit, but also I just felt like, I was really connected with nature. I felt like I was in this challenging, sometimes scary environment, but also it just had so much 
beauty. I felt like I was surrounded by beauty. And while it was challenging and stressful at times, it also felt very calming in many ways to be out there and just challenging myself. And I was always also very fascinated by team dynamics and how one little tweak in the team dynamics can just change everything. So I liked sort of figuring out what I was made of, how I could be a positive influence on a team, how I could help push other people to keep going when they felt like they wanted to quit. For me, I got a lot of satisfaction out of that. Could I be a catalyst for change in somebody else's life? And that happened a lot in the mountains. And so that's why I still really love, I'm 55 now and I still really love being out there in these situations. Okay, first of all, I can't believe you're 55. You look about 20. Now, oh, it's this function called touch up my appearance on Zoom. <laughs> but That's Allison, everyone's okay. like, what's your secret? I'm like, touch up my appearance like, button. Amazing. But here's what I love because you had a hole in your heart. Now, a lot of people would say, okay, you know, that's fixed, but I don't want to do anything, you know, that's going to make it worse. And this is a perfect example. I always talk about going first. And what that means is deciding what's possible for you, deciding what life you're going to live, deciding what something means to you. So in that going first and deciding that, hey, they they stitched up my hole. Now I'm going to go explore the world. Like to me, that's the most beautiful example of what's possible. And what would you say was the biggest fear or did you have no fear after that? What was the biggest fear and how did you break through it? Well, <laughs> part of it was, I think being in these environments where there's a lot of danger, I kind of didn't really even process it because I, I thought, oh, well, I've almost died a few times already. So, you know, here I am. Um, but I think part of it was also knowing that this is just a mountain, a mountain is nothing more than a pile of rock and ice. And you can always go back. So I always felt like I made conservative decisions. And you always have to keep in mind that the summit of a mountain is only the halfway point. It is never the goal. It is never the end point. It's the halfway point because you have to get yourself back down. And that's why, you know, on Everest and a lot of other big mountains, most of the deaths that occur occur after people have reached the summit because they use everything they've got in them to get themselves to the top. They're so determined to get there, but they don't have enough energy reserves left to get themselves back down. So for me, I always had to keep that in mind. The summit on a mountain is. First of all, nothing more than a pile of rock and ice. It's a pile of rock and ice at the bottom. It's a pile of rock and ice at the top, right? It's the lessons you learn along the way that are going to be most important. And if you have to turn back from the summit, just come back another time to get it, right? So just being conservative and also just keeping in mind that the summit is never the goal. It is nothing more than the halfway point. Coming back alive, number one goal. Right, coming back with all your fingers and toes, coming back as friends with the people that you're with, like these are really the, the goals of climbing Mount Everest yeah. or any any mountain for that matter. I love that so much. And that's so important in life. It's not just about that destination. It's right. about who you become along the way and what you make of it after. Now, I know with that first American women's team expedition, something happened 
And and you said something that I loved. I don't know where I read it, but you you said most people aren't afraid of the risk. They're more afraid of failing. You said that somewhere, and I love that because that's so true. But can you tell us a little bit about what happened and and the lesson, the really powerful lesson that you share everywhere now yeah. that you learned because of it? So, all right. So we were the first American women's Everest expedition. And because of that, and we were sponsored by the Ford Motor Company. So we had a ton of media coverage. This was before social media, of course. This is back in 2002. So we had media coverage all over the world. People were following the expedition, you know, live from the mountain, all these things going on. And then we got to within 270 feet of the summit and storm clouds blew in. So we had really poor visibility and we had to turn around less than 300 feet, a football field, um, less than a football field from the summit. And it was just heartbreaking because we had spent two months on the mountain. We had all this media coverage. And before we went to the mountain, we did all, you know, we did the whole morning show circuit and the evening news anchors were interviewing us. And we're just talking about how we want to send this message about what a team of women can do when they lock arms and work together. And the theme of the trip was no boundaries. That was Ford's tagline for their vehicles at the time. No boundaries. That was their big marketing campaign. And push yourself and achieve your dreams and all this stuff. And then we missed the top by what felt like that much, right? I mean, so then we had to come back from that trip and do the whole media tour again and talk about what happened. And it just was hard because it was such a high profile failure, right? Being covered in the media. Ah, they didn't make it. And we were the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke when he was still hosting his late night talk show. And so it just felt like a punch in the gut to have everybody talking about the fact that we didn't achieve this goal. And nobody seemed to focus on the fact that we were the first team of American women to even try something like this. It was an altitude record for every single member of the team. Yet Everybody was so focused on the fact that we didn't make it. And I think I really internalized all of that media coverage and just, again, they didn't have social media at the time, but they had blogs. Discovery Channel was blogging about the trip. And so I could read the comments and just the unkind comments. Oh, they had all this funding, everything laid out in front of them and they blew it. And I really internalized all of the negativity, which is why I'm really not on social media very much because I have a hard time just shutting out the negative stuff. But it really ate at me and I really felt like I disappointed myself, my team, Ford, our sponsor. You know, we wanted to unfurl the big Ford flag at the top. And I felt like we disappointed all our followers who are following along with us on Discovery Channel. And I just really let that failure sink in and just felt like I, I was a disappointment to everybody. Okay, and stop though, because you do realize that you didn't disappoint everyone who loves and cares about you and every member on the team, because had you tried to break through and get there just so you can raise a flag and that's only the halfway point, right? what could have happened? Yeah, I mean, that's the I'm thing sure. is it would have been, talk about a PR disaster if something had happened oh to someone God. on our team that would have really been terrible. And so turning around is a hard decision, but 
it was the right one. I don't think it was a wrong decision and I don't regret it, but it was hard. And it took me, I would, it took me about eight years. Well, it took me exactly eight years to get up the guts to go back and try it again in 2010, because I really let that failure eat away at me. And just, I was so scared because I thought, what if I fail again? What if I disappoint people again? And will I ever find another sponsor? If I fail, I have a high profile trip and I fail again. Will I ever find another sponsor? Will I ever find people that will invite me on another climb with them? And so just all of the, what if things go wrong, just invaded my brain and took over. What if all these things go wrong? Instead of thinking about, well, what if they go right? Yes. You know, what if they go right? Yes. What could happen then? What are the possibilities? then. And so uh, it, it, long story short, but a dear, dear friend of mine ended up passing away from lymphoma and um, no, well, sorry, complications from lymphoma. She did not pass away from lymphoma, but she ended up with a lung infection because she, from her treatment, she had some lung damage yeah. from stem cell transplant, chemo, radiation, from all that treatment, she had lung damage. And then she ended up with a severe lung infection. That is actually what she passed away from. Um, but she was this person who I felt like was so brave and so fearless. And so, and I always said, if I ever go back to Mount Everest again, I want to go with Meg. Um, her name was Meg Brate Owen. And so after she passed away, her spirit really spoke to me. And I just thought about her spirit and how her courage and her willingness to try all these crazy new things all the time. And she didn't care if she was good at them or not. She was just always trying new things. And so that's that spirit that she embodied really spoke to me. I don't mean like her spirit spoke to me. Yeah, I mean, right. thinking about her spirit that spoke to me. Right. And, um, and so I decided to go back to Mount Everest kind of in her honor. Cause I always thought if I ever go back, I want to go with her. So I engraved her name in my ice axe. And I went back to the mountain eight years later and I did summit Mount Everest on my second attempt in 2010. So absolutely like, amazing. Thank you. I feel like sometimes you need something bigger than yourself to push you to reach further. Not just the sponsorship or the people's expectations right. because I personally, and I think I've said this before, I think that was the most brave and courageous thing ever to turn around that close to the top because you knew it was the right thing for every single member on that team and their families. Like yeah. to me, I feel like it was such a brave and courageous choice. That was a hard thing to do. Turning around when you're that close, like turning around and walking away from the deal honestly is harder than continuing on. It's so much easier to just put one foot in front of the other and keep going. It's actually harder to turn around. So when I hear about people that turn back from the top, I have so much respect for them. And it makes me think that they are brave. They are courageous. They are smart. You have to know your limits so well. And we always want to say like, no limits, no limits. Keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing to a point right? But once you run out of energy on Everest, if you collapse up there, there's not a lot that can be done to help you. When rescues are just very tough to orchestrate up that high on the mountain. So 
you have to be able to get yourself back down and you can't rely on other people. And that's why you always have to make decisions that are going to be, you know, in, in the best interest of the health and safety of the team, rather than going for glory and the media attention and, and the accolades. And I feel, Allison, and, and let me know if you agree that everything kind of happens to set you up for what you're meant to be doing in the world. Yeah. And I feel like that lesson that you share with people all around the world, Allison is one of the most sought after keynote speakers. I want to go listen to her speak everywhere <laughs> she goes. But these lessons are so incredibly powerful. And even the one that I just picked out of what you said, when you went and climbed Everest and got to the top and felt your friend with you in that moment, like the fact that when we make these goals about something more than ourselves, mm -hmm. it almost brings out m even more magic within us. Yeah. And I think that that's a really powerful lesson as well. It it's funny, you know what I think about a lot. This was, of course, well after I summoned Everest, because this is when you were coming back. I'm going to get choked up talking about this, but I have this. Sorry. <laughs> Wait, we're down the wrong way. Oh no! <laughs> Sorry. I want to give you the Heimlich, but I can't. Zoom. <laughs> I have this um, picture in my head. It was a video that. <laughs> Sorry. Wait, let me try this again. Don't. Don't go anywhere. We're staying right here. We just want you to survive this. So take your time. I know she climbed Mount Everest and choked on some water. Um, I have this picture in my head. It was a video you posted when you were coming back after your cancer and you were running. And it was like the gate, the posture, like everything was off. Like you were, looked like you were like not on balance almost. And you were struggling with every step and i could see how hard that was for you i remember i have that video that image in my head still i remember when you posted it and you like again like it was the gate was off everything was off but you were running you were running and it was such a powerful video like i said i i will never forget it it's still in my head about it doesn't have to look perfect and it doesn't have to feel easy and it it can be awkward and you know, it can be awkward and off, but if you just get out there and move, if you just get out there and try like that is progress. And I know, of course, you're so different today than you were when you were first coming back from your treatments, but I have that video, that footage in my head. It just stayed with me because I was like, you know what, when I do things like it doesn't have to be pretty, doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be flawless. Yes, it's it's accepting where you are yes. in each moment and everything. I mean, think about a baby that's learning how to walk. They don't just get up and, you know, walk it around like right. no worries. Like they, they get up, they down, fall down. They take they two struggle. steps, they fall down. And that's what it felt like to me to start running again. And it's just accepting where you are and holding on to like, well, where do you want to get? Eventually right. the baby wants to get up and walk around without falling. I wanted to run without, you know, pain and, yeah. and without, you know, barely being able to breathe. But it is that progress that keeps us going. And, and, but if we're always focusing, and this is something 
when I retired from being a professional triathlete, you know, now I run and I'm like so slow. If I was comparing myself to how I ran when I was 30 years old, running 33 minute 10K to my hour long 10K, like I'd be miserable and I probably wouldn't do it. So talk a little bit about, now you've gone on, so we've talked about Everest, but you also did the Grand Slam. Is it called the Adventure Grand Slam? the Adventure Grand Slam, yeah. Can you tell everyone about this? Cause I just think this is just, this blows me away. Oh, thanks. <laughs> blows me away. The Adventure Grand Slam is climbing the seven summits, which is the highest peak on each continent, and then skiing to both the North and the South Pole. So that's what's called the Adventure Grand Slam. And it was interesting because I thought, oh, well, I've climbed Everest, like the other stuff will probably be easier. It's so hard. The skiing part is so hard. So for a couple of reasons, first of all, the North Pole, unlike the South Pole. So the South Pole is in Antarctica. Antarctica, as you know, is a landmass. It's continent. The North Pole is up in the Arctic Circle and it's just on floating ice. So there's no landmass between it. So you ski, you could put in a really hard day skiing, 12 to 15 hours in this super cold environment. You're exhausted. You pitch your tent, you go to sleep. The next day you wake up and you've drifted backwards. And now you are further away than you were the day before when you started. So you've erased all of your progress and you're even further out than you were the previous day. So that's what's so challenging about the North Pole is like, oh my God, it's not like we're, every day we're gonna get a little closer and a little closer and a little closer. And you feel like I'm making progress and making progress. You have those days where you just go completely backwards. So you have to accept that you're not always gonna make progress in a straightforward direction. And then for the South Pole, that was my hardest expedition. I mean, I would say Everest is for sure the hardest, but this was hard for different reasons because I trained as hard as I possibly could because that's just who I am. I'm going to train hard because I want to show up. I want to be the MVP on my team. I want to be a strong contributor. I want to be, you know, helpful to my teammates. So I'm going to show up. I'm going to be prepared. I'm going to be ready. I'm trained. I'm good. I'm strong. I did everything I was supposed to do, but we start skiing. So the goal was to ski. We were skiing from the edge of the ice shelf in West Antarctica called the Ronnie ice shelf all the way to the South pole, 600 miles on skis. And even though I trained really hard because I was the smallest person on the team, I could not keep up with my larger, taller, stronger teammates because we we're each dragging a 150 pound sled that was harnessed to our waist. That's how you drag all your food, your gear, supplies. And so these taller people, like my Canadian teammate, uh, George, he was six foot four, 230 pounds. So a foot taller than me, more than twice my weight. And the law of physics dictates that he's going to be able to drag that sled a lot more quickly and more efficiently than I could. So I ended up being the slowest, weakest person on my team. And it really felt terrible. And I was convinced, you know, no one wants me on this team. I'm terrible. And I bet they really regret allowing me to be part of this and inviting me on the expedition. 
but really this, this expedition was a life changing expedition for me because of the way that my teammates handled my weakness. So it's, I don't want to, it's such a long story, but in a very sneaky fashion, they took weight out of my sled, making my sled lighter so that I could move, I could ski faster and I could keep up with everybody. And just the way they handled it, it's chapter six in my book and it's everyone's favorite chapter. And the way they handled it really sent me this strong message that they wanted me to succeed. They wanted me as part of the team because I overheard them talking. So I knew what they were doing when yeah. they were sneaking the weight out of my sled. But it was this light bulb moment for me because it changed the way that I deal with weak people on my teams, whether they're on my teams in the mountains or in a work situation. Now, when I see someone who's struggling, instead of thinking, oh God, why am I stuck with this person on my team? Oh, why can't they be better or work harder or apply themselves more? Now I know that there are some weaknesses that people will never overcome. Like I can never overcome my size, but you can always compensate for this weakness, not overcome it, but compensate for it. And so now when I see people who are struggling, instead of trying to help them overcome that weakness and get better in that area. Now what I do is I focus on trying to help them find another area where they can really shine, where they can really add value and they can feel appreciated. So it's completely changed the way I deal with weak team members now. So I feel like even though the entire two months was a huge struggle for me, at least until they took the weight out of my sled, it was the most incredible learning experience. So one of my favorite expeditions ever, for sure. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm in awe of you. But also, everyone listening, this is gold in leadership lessons. I mean, truly, this is just gold. So thank you, Allison, for this. Now, in those moments where you are going backwards, like in the North Pole, or you are battling, you know, your inner voice. It's like, oh my God, they're not gonna wanna be with me. They're not gonna wanna have me on the team. Like, how did you maintain your enthusiasm, your focus, your determination amidst things like that? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked about that. The funny thing is, do I have this letter? I used to keep this on my, oh, I have it right here. I always like keep a copy of there's this one email that I have that I always think about when I'm starting to feel like I'm struggling and I'm worthless and I'm not contributing. And it just gets to me. So, um, so one thing I know I can always do regardless of how much I'm struggling when I'm in pain, when I'm exhausted, when I'm running on empty, when I have an altitude headache, when I'm puking, it doesn't matter. One thing I know I can always do is keep a positive mindset and keep a sense of humor. So no matter what I, I try to do that. So it's really interesting because after the expedition, when I, years later, when I wrote my book, I wrote a whole chapter about my expedition team leader, Eric Phillips from that South Pole expedition because of the way he handled my weakness. And so I wrote him this letter and I keep a copy of his response, but I wrote him this letter and I just wrote, Eric, I need your mailing address. I need you. I need to send you a copy of my book as the chapter about you is the hands down favorite. People read the chapter. They tell me that your actions of helping me with the weight in my sled, instead of making me feel like shit about the fact that I was the weakest link on the team is a story that really moves these readers. They think you're amazing, so do I. Here's his response. 
Um, Allison, always great to hear from you. Just returned from attempting to ski from the North Pole to Canada, but our combined strength as a team was not enough to combat the extremely difficult conditions. We fell short by 170 kilometers. Here's what's key. I already bought a copy of your book. No, that's not key, but this is what's key. Before I left for the Arctic. Thank you for the kind words you wrote, but I did the natural thing I would hope all leaders would do. I know there are some people who would have treated the situation differently, but a team is a team and solutions need to be found to keep it moving toward its goal. And this is the part that was key. And do not underestimate your contribution. There were times when you were stronger than all of us. Your spirit, enthusiasm, and humor were unwavering. I wouldn't hesitate to do another trip with you. So this blew me away because I thought, wait, spirit, enthusiasm, and humor? Like, those are strengths. Like those aren't strengths. That's just my personality. Those aren't strengths. Those are strengths is yes. what I learned because our brains contain these specialized cells called mirror neurons. These mirror neurons actually mimic, like they, they take in the, like what's going on around you, like people's attitudes and moods like when the people around you are upbeat and enthusiastic that is contagious you know that that term enthusiasm is contagious that's because of these mirror neurons these specialized cells that mimic what's going on around you so when people around you are positive and upbeat it makes you feel more positive positive yeah. and upbeat and when people around you are down in the dumps and depressed and negative it makes you feel more in a negative so if you can be the person to help others feel uplifted during difficult times, that actually benefits the entire team because research has shown that people who are positive and happy actually perform at a higher level. They are healthier. They have longer lifespans. Like these, there are actual tangible benefits to positivity. Right. And so if you can be that person to just be a positive light to the people around you, like that is a strength and that is a contribution. And it took that note from Eric to make me realize that, you know, remaining positive, no matter what, that can really help your team feel more positive. And keeping hope is really important when you're in these situations where things are really difficult and stressful and people are feeling that anxiety, holding on to hope, right? And having a vision for the future can actually help raise people out of that. Oh my God. So I am being taken back to when I'm in the hospital, everybody thinks I'm dying. And it was my positivity, my hope, my compelling future that I spoke out loud about yeah. That got my entire team, doctors, nurses, yes. my, mom, my wife, my dad, everybody believing in what I had decided that I'm not only going to survive, but I'm going to thrive on the other side. So and you I, have to say it out loud. You have like to. You, said, like, you can't first. be thinking it. You can't be thinking it. I mean, you have to be thinking it, but you have to say it. You have to express it. You have to share it. Yes. You have to share it. And you're not only helping yourself, you're helping the people around oh, you because those mirror neurons in their brain are going to pick up on that positivity and it's going to, you know, come into them as well. Boom. So powerful. So Allison, thank you. So powerful. If you haven't read On the Edge, listeners, please, you've got to go get it. It is just an extraordinary book. 
Now, Allison, you have done so much and so much good in the world. I mean, through the Thayer Leader Development Group, you are, please tell us a little bit about that because I think it's just so powerful and so needed. And I love that you're the one that's doing this. So um, I, well, first of all, I spent four years on the part-time faculty at West Point in the Department of Behavioral Sciences and Leadership. So with the cadets in the classroom. Um, but then I transitioned to this group called Thayer, it used to be called Thayer Leader Development Group. Now they short, they just call it Thayer Leadership. Either way, same group. Um, and I'm actually the only civilian on the faculty. Everyone else is, uh, well, retired military. I'm the only non-military. Um, and this is a group that shares West Point leadership best practices with corporate executives. So it's an executive education program. And there's you know, retired four-star generals on our faculty. Um, and it's really an amazing group. But we share leadership best practices with corporate executives. So um, it, you know, a lot of it is stories, you know, these retired generals are kind of sharing their stories, but we're getting people to really think about leadership in a different way and leading themselves as well as leading the teams around them. And, um, how do you do that in difficult circumstances? And of course, now it's, it's more relevant than now in this pandemic, because we've had two years of this pandemic and it's been incredibly stressful. This is, you know, a, global pandemic that has rocked the entire world, right? Nobody has been left unscathed from this. Yeah. And what military psychologists have found is that, you know, when soldiers come back from combat, a lot of times they experience what people know as PTSD, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. But we know that this doesn't just come from combat. It can come from anything traumatic, like living through a pandemic, right? And they come back and they experience a lot of negative effects when they come home, right? They fear, anxiety, trouble sleeping, trouble functioning in, you know, in the world. But they've also found that some people that come back from traumatic experiences actually become a better version of themselves, right? They come out from it stronger. So there are ways that you can stack the deck in your favor to make sure that after you've come through a traumatic event, that you can be a better version of yourself. And this is a lot of the things that we focus on, you know, in the Thayer leadership group is how do we, how do we help you grow your people into strong leaders? And everybody is in a leadership position, right? That's how we look at it. Leadership isn't just for the senior executives, the people in the C-suite. Leadership training is for everybody at every level of an organization. So that's what we look at, you know, with the Thayer Leadership Group. And it's got a really diverse group of instructors. They're fascinating. Um, Pete Dawkins, who was the youngest person to ever achieve the level of general officer in the army. He was a Heisman Trophy winner, a Rhodes Scholar. I mean, amazing. Becky Halstead, General Halstead was the first female graduate of West Point to you know, reach the level of general officer. So we've got really some amazing faculty. I feel very, you know, humbled and privileged to, to work there with them, but I love the program and it's just a way I can share, you know, my leadership lessons with other people. So I, I focus on leading teams in extreme environments. And I talk about the lessons I've learned on my various expeditions and how those apply to the business world. Um, can it, like who gets to be in this group? Like, I mean, can the listeners get in or is it? Yeah, so actually normally, so companies send their managers through the program, but we also have what we call open enrollment periods where anybody can come join 
the these sessions and these seminars so you don't have to you know it doesn't have you don't have to be working for a big company to come through we have open enrollment so people can go you can just google like Thayer leadership online and you'll see the website and you can actually enroll in an open enrollment group well you might just see my name in there <laughs> i mean it sounds amazing and one thing i just want to um when you talk about ptsd and how people can come out of that a better version of themselves. I mean, I can speak to that. Yes. Yes. Almost dying. You know, I don't look back and think, oh my God, why did that happen? Like, this is going to sound crazy, but I wouldn't change it no. because of who I am today because of that experience. And you don't, you can live in fear and you can let that fear be the central theme of your life. Yes. Or, you can look at the positivity and the strength and the fact that you've overcome this and you can let that be the central theme of your life. That's no, it's no, I mean, it's no surprise. I know you're one of Tony Robbins' favorite speakers and it doesn't surprise me at all. Every time I talk to you, I'm like, this is why Tony Robbins loves Syria. You're so sweet. I get it. Thank you, Allison. Now I have probably one of the most important questions. Yes. Because you later on in life got your first dog yes right? now when we talk about so so when i look back at my childhood yeah. my animals were my most powerful source of love yes. and i found them pretty much my most powerful teachers as well you being a teacher to so many and and such a beautiful and powerful example to the world can you share First of all, what were you waiting for? And secondly, like how your experience has been finally having dogs in your life and what you've learned from them. Yeah. So it's funny. I never liked dogs. I didn't dislike them. I just didn't like them. I would never go pet one or go near one. Really. I just was like, whatever. I don't dislike them. I just had like, so anyway, um, my first dog was Trooper. That's him back there. And Troop was actually Pat's dog, my husband's dog when we met. So I met Pat in 2009 and he had troop. He's this hundred and at the time he was 112 pounds. Um, he, as he got older, he kind of withered away a, a bit, but he was this big lab slobbery, you know? And, and so I go to Pat's house and he comes running up to me and I'm like, to get that thing away from me, this is disgusting. And like he sheds and he slobbers and he smells, he smells like a dog. Right. But I just thought, Oh, this is gross. And I just thought, Oh, if Pat wants to date me, he's going to need to come to my house because I don't, don't want to be around this gross dog. And, but then he, he grew on me. He grew on me so much. And then I just absolutely fell in love with him covered in dog hair and dog slobber all the time. Like I didn't care. Like the more dog slobber on me, the better, the more dog hair. I mean, just, he was, i just really became attached to him. My husband started calling me the crazy dog lady. And it was funny when Pat and I got married, we, we didn't get, we got married in 2019. We dated for a long time. And, um, my friend said, oh, now that you guys are married, is Pat going to officially adopt Trooper? And I said, no, Trooper, Trooper is Pat's dog. They're like, what? <laughs> no one knew that. Everyone thinks he's my dog because I would always post about him. And I would always just go on and on about him. And I truly loved him with every, I mean, he was my soulmate dog. He really was. We lost him in December. Oh, but oh god! Oh my god! It was brutal. Just first, the first time you lose a dog, especially when it's your soulmate dog, is so hard. It's the hardest thing I've been through. But 
I mean, I just focus on gratitude, right? I focus on the fact that I had this dog in my life for 30, well, I had him in my life for 12 years. He was one year old when I met him, but now I'm obsessed with dogs. All I want to do, like when I retire, I want to have a dog rescue for older labs and golden retrievers that are 10 years old and older. All I want to do is be around dogs all the time. I mean, if no one remembers anything about me after I'm gone from this earth, I just want them to remember that I loved dogs. I, I, when people call me the crazy dog lady, I think it's the biggest compliment. And when people tell me like, it was so obvious how much you love trooper that just warms my heart because I did like, I, I loved him so much. I'll show you. Did he actually, this is trooper. Can you see him? That's him too back there. But just the best boy. I mean, really, I learned so much from him about unconditional love, right? They really, dogs teach you about unconditional love. And I also think about how, like every time you come to the door and the dog's like right there, oh, I'm so excited. Like I should be doing that for other people too, right? Every time I see a friend, I should be like that dog. Like I'm so excited. Just making people feel like you're excited to be around them and that you're excited to see them and be with them. And dogs are so forgiving, right? They're so forgiving about anything that goes wrong. And so, um, I just feel like I learned so much from him and he just remains in my heart forever. I talk to him every night, every night before I go to bed, I, I talk to him and tell him how much I miss him. I do that with my boy, Calvin. I think we've had this discussion, but that's soulmate doggy. And I'm sure you're still hurting over yeah, it. Yeah, it's hard. It's I was looking through years. videos of him last night, crying, crying. Oh, yeah, but they are with you. And, and I want to tell you, Allison, like with my boy, Calvin, I always would say if I am walking and there's a feather right in my path, that is you visiting me. He would also turn on music. This sounds so weird, but like suddenly my phone would start playing some song and I would feel him. So look out because he yeah. is your angel. I know you already know that, but. I mean, I never thought I could be so attached to a dog. Like dog love is real and it's so deep and it's so special. And I really, if there's anyone listening to this or watching it that feels lonely or sad or down, get a dog. I'm telling you, it is life changing. It is life changing. I would just lay on the floor with him all the time. I would lay down on the floor with him and look into his eyes and just tell him how much I loved him. I did this like multiple times a day. And I feel so fortunate during COVID that I got to be home with him. So I'm normally on the road quite a bit for speeches, but I got to be home with him you know, for the last two years of his life. And it was really a gift to be able to spend that time with him. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Now, yeah. Allison, I could talk to you for like 10 hours and I'm sure everyone listening to the Bedhead Chronicles could listen to you for hours. How can they find out more about you, connect with you, come see you talk? And, and, and also about your book, please just let them know how they can get more of Alison Levine. Like, oh. we <laughs> I don't know if they want more of Alison Levine. Oh, this yes, is probably enough for them. Oh right? no, we want more. Um, I have a website, just alisonlevine.com. I'm on social a little bit, not too much. Um, I don't know. I just, 
my mental health is better when I'm not on it all the time, but I'm on social a little bit at um, Levine underscore Allison, but feel free. You can also, if anyone has any questions, you can reach out to me on my website. There's a contact button there. If you send an email into me with a question, I'll, I'll get back to you right away. Um, that your email will come right to me, not to my assistant, because I don't have one, but I promise you that I will respond to anybody's inquiries. So um, feel free to get touching the books available on Amazon, of course, or anywhere else, you know, on Does anyone go on that website? <laughs> <laughs> it's an amazing book, Alice. So oh, and I dedicated it to Trooper. The dedication is like to the most amazing, handsome, gorgeous, intelligent, talented, like on and on and on, Trooper. Amazing. Allison, I feel so blessed. I feel so grateful for you. I feel grateful for you. So you inspire me so much. That video of you running is always in my head and it just gives me the strength to keep going when I feel like I want to quit. Well, I know that regardless of all that you've achieved to this point, I have a feeling it's still only the beginning because I know you and I can't wait to just continue to follow your light in this world. Thank you, Allison. I adore you. And thank you for being on the Bedhead Chronicles. We are all so grateful. I'm grateful to be part of it. So thank you for having me. And um, hopefully I'll be out to the ranch before too long. I can't wait. Thank you, Allison. We love you. Thank you for listening and sharing this precious time with me. Please remember to subscribe and to leave me a review. You can find me on Instagram at Siri Lindley, Facebook, Siri Lindley, and Twitter at Seltz, S-E-L-T-S. You can also reach me via email at info at Have an amazing day and shine on.